Chapter 5 of The Conquest. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phyllis Vincelli. The Conquest by Oscar Michaud. Chapter 5 Go West, Young Man, and Grow Up with the Country. In justice to the many thousands of pea-porters, as well as many conductors, who were in the habit of retaining the company's money, let it be said that they are not the hungry thieves and dishonest rogues the general public might think them to be, dishonest as their conduct may seem to be. They were victims of a vicious system, built up and winked at by the company itself." Before the day of the Interstate Commerce Commission, an anti-pass and two-cent-per-mile legislation, and when passengers paid cash fares, it was a matter of tradition with the conductors to knock down, and nothing was said, although the conductors, as now, were fairly well paid and the company fully expected to lose some of the cash fares. In the case of the porters, however, the circumstances are far more mitigating. At the time I was with the company, there were, in round numbers, 8,000 porters in the service on tourist and standard sleepers who were receiving from a minimum of $25 to not to exceed $40 per month, depending on length and desirability of service. Out of this he must furnish, for the first ten years, his own uniforms and cap, consisting of summer and winter suits, at twenty and twenty-two dollars, respectively. After ten years of continuous service, these things are furnished by the company. Then there is the board, lodging, and laundry expense. Trainmen are allowed from fifty to sixty percent off of the regular bill of fare, and at this price, most any kind of a meal in an a la carte diner comes to forty and fifty cents. Besides, the waiters expect tips from the crew as well as from the passengers and make it more uncomfortable for them if they do not receive it than they usually do for the passenger. I kept an accurate itemized account of my living expenses, including six dollars per month for a room in Chicago and economize as I would, making one uniform and cap last a whole year, I could not get the monthly expense below $40, $15 more than my salary, and surely the company must have known it and condoned any reasonable amount of knockdown on the side to make up the deficiency in salary. The porter's knockdown usually coming through the sympathy, goodwill, and unwritten law of knocking down, that the conductor divide equally with the porter, all of which, however, is now fast becoming a thing of the past, owing to recent legislation, investigations, and strict regulation of common carriers by Congress and the various laws of the States of the Union, with the added result that conductors' wages have increased accordingly, 
Few conductors today are foolish enough to jeopardize their positions by indulging in the old practice, and it leaves the porters in a sorry plight indeed. All in all, the system, while deceptive and dishonest on its face, was for a time a tolerated evil, apparently sanctioned by the company, and became a veritable disease among the colored employees who, without exception, received and kept the company's money without a single qualm of conscience. It was a part of their duty to make the job pay something more than a part of their living expenses. Ignorant as many of the porters were, most of them knew that from the enormous profits made that the company could and should have paid them better wages, and I am sure that if they received living wages for their services, it would have a great moralizing effect on that feature of the service, and greatly add to the comfort of the traveling public. However, the greedy and inhuman attitude of this monopoly toward its colored employees has just the opposite effect, and is demoralizing indeed. Thousands of black porters continue to give their services in return for starvation wages and are compelled to graft the company and the people for a living. Shortly before my cessation of activities in connection with the P Company, it had a capitalization of $95 million, paying 8% dividend annually, and about two years after I was compelled to quit, it paid its stockholders a $35 million surplus, which had accumulated in five years. Just recently, a melon was cut of about a like amount, and over 8,000 colored porters helped to accumulate it at from 25 to $40 per month. A wonder it is that their condition does not breed such actual dishonesty and deception that society would be forced to take notice of it and the traveling public should be thankful for the attentive services given under these near-slave conditions. As for myself, the reader has seen how I made it pay, and I have no apologies or regrets to offer. When that final reckoning comes, I am sure the angel clerk will pass all porters against whom nothing more serious appears than what I have heretofore related. While I was considered very fortunate by my fellow employees, the whole thing filled me with disgust. I suffered from a nervous worry and fear of losing my position all the time, and really felt relieved when the end came and I was free to pursue a more commendable occupation. In going out of the superintendent's office on my farewell leave, the several opportunities I had seen during my experience with the P Company loomed up and marched in dress parade before me. The conditions of the Snake River Valley and the constructiveness of the people who had turned the Alkali Desert into valuable farms worth from fifty to five hundred dollars an acre thrilled me so that I had no misgivings for the future." but destiny had other fields in view for me and did not send me to that land of Eden of which I had become so fond 
in quest of fortune. Such a variety of scenes was surely an incentive to serious thought. What was termed inquisitiveness at home brought me a world of information abroad. This inquisitiveness, combined with the observation afforded by such runs as those to Portland and around the circle, and perhaps coming back by Washington, D.C., gave practical knowledge. Often western sheepmen, who were ready talkers, returning on my car from taking a shipment to Chicago, gave me some idea of farming and sheep-raising. I remember thinking that Iowa would be a fine place to own a farm, but quickly gave up any further thought of owning one there myself. A farmer from Tama, that state, gave me the information. He was a beautiful decoration for a pea berth and a neatly made bed with three sheets, and I do not know what possessed him to ever take a sleeper, for he slept little that night, I am sure. The next morning, about five o'clock, while gathering and shining shoes, I could not find his, and being curious, I peeped into his berth. What I saw made me laugh indeed. There he lay, all bundled into his bed in his big fur overcoat and shoes on, just as he came into the car the evening before. He was awake, and looked so uncomfortable that I suggested that he get up if he wasn't sleepy. "'What say?' he answered, leaning over and sticking his head out of the berth as though afraid someone would grab him. As this class of farmers like to talk, and usually in loud tones, I led him into the smoking room as soon as he jumped out of his berth to keep him from annoying other passengers. Here he washed his face, still keeping his coat on. "'Remove your coat,' I suggested. "'You'll be more comfortable.' "'You bet,' he said, taking his coat off and sitting on it. Lighting his pipe, he began talking, and I immediately inquired of him how much land he owned. He answered that he owned a section. "'Gee, but that's a lot of land,' I exclaimed, getting interested.' and what is it worth an acre? The last quarter I bought, I paid $80 an acre, he returned. That is over 13000 and I could plainly see that my little $2,000 bank account wouldn't go very far in Iowa when it came to buying land. That was nine years ago, and the same land today will sell about $150 an acre, and the end is not yet. I concluded on one thing, and that was, if one whose capital was under eight or ten thousand dollars desired to own a good farm in the great central west, he must go where the land was new or raw or undeveloped. He must begin with the beginning and develop with the development of the country. By the proper and accepted methods of conservation of the natural resources, and close application to his work, his chances for success are good. When I finally reached this conclusion, I began searching for a suitable location in which to try my fortune and the harrowing of the soil. End of chapter 5